next march, they were saying, we are one, we are united, we are standing for human rights, we're standing for solidarity, and the right to come together for a better life. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. Welcome back. It's Appalachia Meets World. It's Will. And Neil, what's happening, my brother? Hey. Literally. Yeah, yeah. My brother. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all good here. It's all good, man. <laughs> all good in the Appalachia area where I reside. Yeah, well, I'll go ahead and ask you where you from. Yeah, you know where I hold it down, down in the 606. It's going to be my new tagline, sorry. The 606. Yeah. You know, our last guest who, who's got some ties to the Invest 606, you know, he's – and then hopefully we have that guy on soon. I know we're working on it, but uh, I'm just going to go ahead and tell him I'm going to use 606 all the time. I didn't steal it. It's just that's where I'm at. It's where I be. That's right. You know? 606. I think I'll use it too. You can't. Your phone number doesn't start with it. Sorry. You got to get that burner. You got to get that burner phone we was talking about. A couple Does your phone number start with it? Yeah, buddy. <laughs> you, you don't know my like, – listen to you. like you, you, No, you your know? phone number says Neil Warren. You don't know my phone number. I don't know your phone number. Why would Are I? Are you kidding me? It's in my phone, but I don't know it. But you don't know my phone number. I'm hurt. Does anyone know phone numbers anymore? I, I can remember our I mean, phone – I can remember our old phone number growing up before cell phones. That's right. Cause that's, it's probably, still, that's probably the last phone number I remember. It's still mom and dad's phone number though. So it's, it's easy to remember. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Three, three, four, one. No, 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 no. That's, that's that, what it was in Pineville growing that up. Was, that was Pineville. That yeah, was Pineville. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Well, we moved from there before I knew what phone numbers were. So I don't, <laughs> I, I don't count it. Maybe I can't so. count it. <laughs> <laughs> no, who 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 knows phone numbers anymore? No one. Yeah, uh, I'm I lucky mean, to remember my wife's phone number. I do remember I, that one. But. I know a few. I know a few, but that's fair. I mean, do you I, know I, mine. Gosh, I was hoping you could come back. <laughs> exactly. <with that. laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I know it when I look it up <laughs> in my phone. Exactly. Right. We all have phones. Yeah, it matters. It's a different world we live in. What else is going on? Had some major rains here today. It's good to it's good to have rain, but man, lots and lots of water causes frustration at times. Yeah, it, it's rained here too. It, it rained every single day this past week. It didn't rain this weekend, but now it's going to rain every single day next week too. You know, we we'll go weeks upon weeks upon weeks, and it doesn't rain, and then. We have some major thunderstorms in the middle of the day. And uh, just for, you know, the sake of telling you this story, I was gone most of the day. Uh, one day last week, I got home about 8 o'clock, and it had thunderstormed and uh, rained really hard that day. And uh, so I get home about 8 p.m., got a picture on my cell phone from a neighbor who was at the local Dollar General. He was in there petting my dog <laughs> you dog got away <laughs> <laughs> so my dog had escaped uh she gets really skittish uh during storms and i usually you know she has a place to always get in but sometimes when it starts thundering she kind of freaks out so at 805 i go to the dollar store and they got my dog inside the dollar store they said, I said, I said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Uh, they said, it's okay. She went down the aisle and got her some hot dog buns a few minutes ago. So she shouldn't be hungry. Nice. Nice. <laughs> and then I go, how long has she been here? They said, oh, just since three o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Appalachia. So yeah, even, even the good people at the dollar store take care of your dog when things happen. <laughs> That's right. Love it. Anyway, I got her back. It's all good. We have a very, I want to say, educational show tonight. Yeah, for you know sure. we've we've mentioned in the past Blair Mountain, how it's not taught in schools, how not a lot of people know about it, but how important it was for not only 
the region of Appalachia, our central, especially central Appalachia, but just labor history in general. To not know about it is a travesty. But you know, it's a it's a major focal point of history. Just to give a little bit of background, 1921 was when Blair Mountain happened. It was a part of the the mine wars in central Appalachia. It all came to a conclusion there at the battle. They call it Bloody Blair Mountain. It just so happens that this year is the 100th anniversary or the centennial of the Battle of Blair Mountain. And so in Maytuan, West Virginia, they are where the Mine Wars Museum is. They are having a centennial for Blair Mountain. And we have some folks from the museum that are going to talk to us about Blair Mountain, about the museum and about all the things that are going to go on during Labor Day weekend for the centennial. So I'm pretty pumped to hear about what's going on, what's what's going to be happening. I think uh, Blair Mountain should definitely be mentioned in our kids' uh... Uh, learning experience at some point. I don't know what the right age is, but it's something that, um, especially here in Appalachia, but really everywhere, should learn the history. Yeah, behind. such a pivotal point, such an important part of our history. But yeah, and and the guests we have on today will, will really shed light on that. Maybe teachers can use this podcast moving forward to uh, give their kids a, an opportunity to learn about Blair Mountain. <laughs> yeah. And I'm interested, I, I want to ask him about, you've heard of Mother Jones, right? Yeah. You know, most people have heard of Mother Jones, but I'm interested just to hear about that history. Also, the term redneck. I know, it's crazy. I thought I invented it, but. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the term comes from. It comes from the labor strikes. It comes from the labor issues, the red bandanas. But I'm, I'm interested to hear that from them as yeah. well, to get educated learn some more, learn what's happening at the Centennial. For folks that don't know, it's over Labor Day weekend. I'm sure they'll talk about it in Maytuan, West Virginia. Yeah, let's get them on. Let's get them on so we can, uh, obviously they can shed better light into this than we can even. So let's do it. All right, let's go. Welcome to our special episode of Appalachian Meets World, we have with us today Kenzie New Walker, who is a coal miner's daughter, granddaughter, and great-granddaughter in Mingo County, West Virginia. She's also the director of the Mine Wars Museum there in Matewan, West Virginia. In addition to that, she's a community organizer and the project coordinator of the 2021 Battle of Blair Mountain Centennial. We also have with us today Wilma Still, who is a founding board member of the museum, a retired art teacher with decades of service to the Mingo County Schools, and an associate member of the United Mine Workers of America, Local 1440. And in addition, we have her husband, Terry Still, who is a member of the UMWA Local 1440 and a contributor to the museum. Well, that's a mouthful, but I wanted to welcome you guys to the show and we greatly appreciate you being here and everything that you're doing thank Thanks you for having us Lord. yes sure thing like i said i consider this a special episode because you guys are celebrating the battle of blair mountain which happened 100 years ago so you're, you're having the centennial over labor day i wanted to mention that and then i wanted to ask you guys what we ask all our guests as you know appalachia is big on history big on tradition our family's big, mine and Neil's family, my brother, is big on tradition as well. And at the holidays, we always have appetizers. We have a huge spread of appetizers. We usually have more appetizers than the actual meal. But we just wanted to ask you to kick it off. What's your favorite appetizer or holiday dish? My favorite holiday dish is a butterscotch spectacular that my mom makes. It was passed down to her from my nanny. And I don't know anyone else that makes this dish. And anytime like we have to take something somewhere, mom will always make the butterscotch spectacular. It is. Sounds decent. spectacular. It is spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, Wilma, you guys have anything? I think my favorite is probably banana pudding, homemade banana pudding. Warm or cold? Warm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Warm. That's the best. <laughs> yeah. I would agree with her. Banana pudding. We have a small little... Uh, 
Well, I, I'll tell you one thing. Our friends also like banana pudding when they come and visit. And one time Wilma was making it and uh, something happened and she couldn't finish it, the banana pudding and it was sitting on the table. And I don't know if you know Will Do- Willie Dobson or not, but Willie put a, maybe a little sign and stuck it in the, what was she had done of the banana pudding and called it abandoned pudding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Oh, that, that's good. Uh, yeah. You, I, as far as I'm concerned, you can't beat warm banana pudding. Now that we got that out of the way, we'll go ahead and get into it. Like I said, you guys are celebrating the Battle of Blair Mountain, which happened 100 years ago, the celebrations over Labor Day. Uh, of this year. And I wanted to mention that the Mine Wars Museum, which is in Maytuan, West Virginia, just dedicated a new building in June of this year, which I'm sure you guys are excited about. Yeah, we've got a lot going on at the museum these days. (laughs) It has not been slow. Terry keeps telling me, as he's been telling me for the past three years, it'll get easier. Uh, But we just, yeah, we've got a lot to celebrate. I wanted to point out We've been using three key words to mark the Battle of Blair Mountain Centennial. And one of those is celebrate, but we're not necessarily celebrating the battle or, you know, people taking up arms against each other. What we are celebrating is like the spirit of Blair Mountain and how it's alive today in West Virginia. And so what this means is to celebrate the diversity and inclusiveness because the Battle of Blair Mountain, you know, the miners were an interracial multilingual army Uh, You had immigrants, um, African-American workers from the South and native Appalachians. We're also memorializing Blair Mountain to memorialize the men, women, children who, you know, gave their lives for the labor struggle, gave their lives for the union. And then we're also commemorating the battle um, as it happened because it hasn't really got its real props. Yeah, we're excited. And 1440, Terry can talk about this. They just donated their their new bank building to see President Cecil Roberts in June. And that's a really good point that you're not necessarily celebrating, but memorializing all those efforts and all those people. For our listeners that don't know, and we kind of talked about this before we started, but the history of Blair Mountain, it's, and we've talked about this on previous episodes of how my brother and I, we didn't learn about it in school. First time I heard about it was after I graduated college. You know, it's something that's, so important to not only the history of West Virginia or Appalachia, but the history of America and not too many people know about it. Can you just tell our listeners, just give a brief history of Blair Mountain and why it's so important to the region? First of all, like what you just said, Will, I never learned about this in school. That's one of the most common phrases we hear in the museum. Folks don't learn about this. My experience was the same in middle school. I was actually introduced to the, to the history by my dad, you know, this oral tradition that we have in Appalachia to pass down stories. Also had an 11th grade teacher who assigned a book, Storming Heaven uh, by Denise Giardini, which is a great novel for folks who, who want to get into it. But to sum it down, I guess I'd say the history of Blair Mountain is complicated. When the mine war started in the early 1900s, they weren't, the mines weren't unionized in Southern West Virginia. So the UMWA was founded in 1890, but it wouldn't be until the 1930s that the union was actually recognized. And so there was a lot going on in the Southern coal fields that denied miners their constitutional civil human rights. Um, They were being surveillance by mine guards. Uh, They were subjected to some of the most dangerous working conditions in America at the time. They were in this system of control by the, by the companies who had set up these coal company housing, coal company stores. And so they would get interlocked into this system of like constant debt. You know, that's where the, the song that a lot of folks know, I grew up listening to 16 tons by Tennessee Ernie Ford. You know, I owe my soul to the company store. This was what a lot of miners were experiencing at the time. And so Blair Mountain didn't happen overnight. It was decades and decades of struggle that, that caused Blair Mountain and essentially the miners were fighting for their rights to join the union. There's actually an, ex- and I know you, you know this, I think it's on your website, but there's an excellent documentary that talks about the history of not only Blair Mountain, but also the mine wars uh, throughout that time period. It, and it's called The Mine Wars. Any of the listeners haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out and it'll give you a rundown of what Kinsey was just talking about. 
And to that point that it mentions in that documentary, it includes obviously the United Mine Workers Association and, and how it was organized and, and the struggles that it went through in the beginning. But it also talks about how the UNWA kind of created a culture for the region. And, and I think they talked about it, that culture being a culture of resistance, a culture of dignity, of fierce pride. They actually quoted it as people made of steel. And maybe, Terry, you can talk to this a little bit. But when I say that, I also picture the people of Appalachia and how we've always been, how how strong and and traditional and and how strong of community we are. Do you think UMWA had something to do with that or or from, from our history kind of developed that culture that we have today? I think so. I was born in Maitland in 1952. At, at that time, they had actually had a hospital in Maitland, you know, and it's like a lot of the little coal towns, you know, you, in eastern Kentucky and southern West Virginia, southwestern Virginia, you know, these coal towns had about everything they needed to survive on, you know, back then. I went to school at Maitland, and I can remember the school was located in the upper end of the town, and I used to go get one of the teacher's mail for him every day, and we go right by where these bullet holes, you, you know, were on the corner down there where the shootout had took place. And I can never, I've tried to remember if I've ever stopped to look at that during that time or had even heard about it during that time. So it was a, a part of history there that even when I was in high school that I didn't even uh, know existed in this little town, you know. Although I came from a union family, I'm a fourth generation coal miner that came from union miners. And I started in the 70s, in the early 70s. And the union was strong at that time because we had been given a, a great thing, a great union. I like to consider that the greatest generation fought for and handed to the boomer generation that actually, uh, I think I, I won't use some of the terms that I'd like to describe it, what we done took and done to it. But we did. Now we, uh, we're in this position in this country now that we can look back and see just what we had and what we've lost. Because um, what we didn't win the Battle of Blair Mountain, you know. That battle wasn't won, but, you know. But we eventually won the war, and we won the war when we voted. That's where you win wars at. Uh, wars are won, you, you know, now not with bullets, but uh, with your when you have the nerve to go and vote and you're allowed to vote. So we won that, and you know, and we won all these things that FDR gave us. Because without uh, some of the programs that FDR installed back then, we wouldn't have been able to unionize. From the time that he got in there, and just a, a matter of a few years, everything in the southern part of West Virginia and eastern Kentucky was unionized because of uh, what uh, the people wanted, uh, you, you know, what politicians, in a way that we always say they do nothing for us. But it's that's what took place that got us pretty well where we had these unions, you know, because we tried it with bullets and, and, and we lost. Yeah. But when the people are behind you and the people know what's right and you do what's right, you, you prosper from it. And we prospered and we give it. <laughs> I think we just we took what they give us and we let it get away from us again. I think our culture has developed that strong sense of pride because of that. I think the last line in that documentary says, ultimately, Blair Mountain was not a victory, but collectively it led to better workplace relations for for more Americans and for a better nation. And I think that's uh, directly to your point that you might not have won Blair Mountain, but for America and for the history of America, you did a lot of things. I think it's the pavement, you know, that got us to where we came to. And it seems like your pavement always has blood in it. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's the bad thing about it, you, you know, but uh, people don't listen until blood shed most of the time. One of the things about Blair Mountain, about the Battle of Blair Mountain and the mine wars in general, was that, and, and, and despite what others may think of the region of West Virginia, of Eastern Kentucky, uh, you, you know, what, what happened during that time period, I think Kenzie mentioned, it wasn't just this white monolith culture that stood up. It was a multicultural, multi-ethnicity upheaval, you know, second largest in the country, in, in the nation's history. 
But can you speak, maybe Wilma, can you speak to the significance of that point of how multicultural and how, how, how important it was to that area and, and to America in general? That's how I got into this, uh, the Mime Wars uh, Museum and all that, fighting to try to raise money and make this history known. Because I, I like the rest of you, I didn't know about this history. I started reading some of the books that were written when I was going to college and I was fascinated with everything I read. David Corbin's books and then the one by Wes Harris uh, edited and fixed that Bill Blizzard had written. When I read his book, it talked about the union swearing you know, like being sworn into the union and swear not to discriminate against your brothers because of cultural race or speech or any of those cultural differences. And I thought, my goodness, this was 1920, 1919. And they were at that time fighting for equal pay between blacks and whites and swearing in not to discriminate against your brothers because of race and cultural differences. And that blew me away. I'd always been a a fighter for civil rights. And I thought if anybody else had this history, this would be celebrated all over the state. Look at us, how progressive we were in 1920 when other things was so different in America. This is what happened in the coal fields of West Virginia. And that's a history I'm really proud of. And that's why I fight so hard for this history. And I know like growing up in the town of Mate One and going to school there, we went to school and it was, um, you know, like not a, this was not a coal company town, Mate One wasn't. It was a private town. It wasn't owned by the coal company. And so there was no black school there. We went to school, blacks and whites together, all through the early 50s, I mean, through the 50s and 60s. Now, in company towns, just a little ways up the road at Red Jacket, which was a company town, there was a black school there. And those were segregated. You know, they went to a school that was different than theirs. And I'm very glad for that history. I'm glad I grew up in Matewan. And I'm glad to those writers that made me aware of my own history. Yeah, that's a great explanation. Kind of give me chills to hear you talk about it. Just the history and, and, and the work that, that you've done there. It's really awesome. I, uh, and, not, and, and like I said, not too many people, unless you've really dug into it and read about it or learned about it, not too many people know about it, which is unfortunate. I wanted to talk briefly about a couple of names that always come up when you you hear Blair Mountain. There's Frank Kenny, there's Looney, there's Sid Hatfield, there's Bill Blizzard, like you mentioned. But the one name that everyone always hears and talks about is Mother Jones. I, I heard Mother Jones growing up, but I didn't necessarily know who Mother Jones was. Can someone just, uh, briefly describe Mother Jones or, or how important Mother Jones was to the history of, of Blair Mountain and to the Mine Wars in general? Mother Jones was very important. The main thing that we need to realize too is we know about Mother Jones because she was well known in a lot of different states for a lot of different you know work that she did. But there is so many women in the coal fields that were a part of this work that we don't know about. When you come to the music museum, you begin to learn some of those other women that you don't know about. And it's just amazing, you know, the things that some of them did. But Mother Jones, like when she lost her, her own family, instead of just wilting away, you know, and sadness and all that, she started fighting for the world's children. Those children that were in factories and coal mines and mills and things in a way that were inexcusable for a child to have to live through. And she fought for those rights for those children to get them out of those institutions that were just, you know, not acceptable for young children. And that's the most important work I think that she did was bringing these history, making it known and showing a light on just how abusive this was. She also had to fight against stereotypes or concepts like 
right now, you know, we'll just do what's right and let everybody else handle things their own way, you know. But the main thing was, if you don't come together to make any change, make the changes that needs to be made, they don't get made. Nothing good gets done when you do nothing. And that's what she told them. And she challenged the women. These are your men. These are your children. Look at them. Look at what's happening to them. Don't tell me about another day. Let's fight for this day. Let's fight for now. And it doesn't have to always be, you know, a physical battle. There's many ways of fighting, but knowledge and understanding and making that connection for people to hear and see the truth. She had ability to do that. She's very good at it. And we're very grateful for that. That's great. And, and, and like I said before, that documentary points out Mother Johnson gives a really good history of, of her and her importance. Can I follow up on something sure. Will said about knowledge? When we think about music and poetry and the impact that it had on the mind wars, Mother Jones wrote about meeting Frank Keeney when he was a young guy. Frank Keeney's grandson, maybe great-grandson, Chuck is either his grandson or great-grandson. Okay. Great grandson. I'm making him older than what he is. <laughs> but Mother Jones said, I, I gave him a book one Sunday and I said to him, go up under the trees and read. Leave the pool room alone. Read and study and find out how to help your fa- fellow miners. And he did. And so Frank Keeney like kept this book of poetry with him and like educated himself for the coming conflicts, which I think is really powerful and also flip the stereotype on its head because when people think of West Virginia, they think like backwards hillbillies, uneducated. And it's the farthest thing from the truth, I think. And um, Chuck has this book of poetry on loan at the museum. So when folks come in and they're in the Paint Creek Cabin Creek exhibit, they can see this book of poetry that still has Frank Keeney's notes, which I think is, it's a really cool uh, artifact that we have. Like your favorite holiday dish, that's a spectacular point that you <laughs> that you made. Um, I want to really get into the reason why we wanted to have you guys on the episode is to really talk about the centennial and kind of gas up uh, everything that you guys are doing and, and and let everyone know when it is and what it is. And I want to give you that opportunity, but also wanted to let listeners know to check out your website. You have so much information on your website about the history about resources that you can that you can turn to to find out about the history. One thing that is mentioned on the Mets website that I wanted to get some hear someone uh, talk about. You know, everyone knows the term redneck. My brother seems to think that he invented the term. But uh, <laughs> can someone just talk to about where redneck came from and how it's important to the mind wars? Yeah, the term redneck was really popularized after the Battle of Blair Mountain. And the reason is, is they called the miners the Redneck Army. They wore red bandanas to identify themselves in battle. Essentially, the red bandana was like this piece of equipment that miners could get at the company store. Because of course, you know, this wasn't provided to them in their workplace. They had to buy their dynamite, they had to buy their canaries, their lanterns, shovels, all these things. And they had to buy it with script. They weren't paid in American currency. And so the red bandana's intention was to like cover up wounds underground. And the reason why it was red is, you know, to keep the miners from going into shock at the sight of blood. So by the time the Battle of Blair Mountain happens, many miners already had this cloth. And so they repurposed it and it helped them identify like who was a miner versus who was a mine guard, you know, on the company side. And so they get, they're called the Redneck Army. And in recent years, like people have taken up this bandana and this is what I want Wilma to talk about is like this, it's reemerged as a symbol of solidarity. It's something we're really, really proud of at the museum. And when we have field trips that come in, students don't leave without a red bandana. And Wilma always gives them a challenge. So Wilma, I'll let you talk about like this resurgence. When, you know, like we say, the term originated during the mine wars during this time period. And that's true. It wasn't just in Mate One or at Blair. It was also in Cotterrada. And 
and during the mine battles there. And what the, the coal company would do is they would tie this in with the communist movement overseas and try to make uh, union organizers look like communist people that had that wanted to destroy our constitution and our way of life and somebody that we should all oppose you know the thing that i say that makes the term redneck exclusively a blair mountain term is that this is the first time that the the miners themselves took up the term redneck and the the red bandana around their neck to say, yes, that's us. We are union. It means union solidarity. It means a brotherhood of all different races and different people coming together for a common cause for the good of all. And that's a term and thing that I love so much. So I give this bandana and the challenge, and I give the whole history of the bandana from Persia all the way through Europe and um, Kashmir all the way to Appalachia. And I tell them, we see everybody as different, but when it comes right down to a human rights and what we all want is pretty simple. We want a life where we can be treated with respect, that we can work and grow and reach our own potential and not be molded into what somebody else says we are and put under a class barrier that doesn't allow us to move. And when they tied those bandanas around their necks to march, they were saying, we are one, we are united. We are standing for human rights. We're standing for solidarity and the right to come together for a better life. And that's a powerful statement to me. Yeah, that's so awesome and, and powerful. And I, I hope those kids uh, recognize how powerful and I hope they appreciate those red bandanas and wear them with pride <laughs> when, when they leave there. Oh, we had so much fun watching them. And you <laughs> ought to see the new ways that you learn to put them on or <laughs> make hats out of them. It's been really fun to watch them. <laughs> yeah, and that's another thing you guys have on your website. You have curriculum and resources that teachers can use uh, to teach a lot of this history in class, which I think is great. Terry, um, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation real quick. I, I, and we'll get to the centennial <laughs> Briefly, but I wanted to ask you, how strong is 1440 today? Is it still a strong union? I, I think I was talking to Kenzie earlier, and there may not be any underground workers currently in 1440, but I, I know that everything with everything going on in Alabama that you all still participate in, and how strong is 1440 today? Well, we think we're the strongest local in the UMWA. That's what we think. <laughs> I wish every local thought that, you know, yeah, right. but we actually think that. And I think some of the higher up people actually think that too. Uh, but we're, uh, we're involved in community work. I mean, like we say, we're all retired. We uh, look at things on the political. Our union is prob probably the most political oriented that's involved in politics as any union I've ever known. And simply because we know that's where change will come from. We're very involved in our um, local politics. We've just elected a whole new, a new mayor and an entirely new town council in the small town of Maitland. And we think we're partly responsible for that. The local in itself, no one works, is working right now, but we are working every day there. We own probably the best property in the town of Mate One. We rent out properties. We have a prop, uh, about 15 properties, I think, that we're rent, renting out for income. And hopefully we can grow from this and provide jobs to people in the community off of this, you know. We like to think that we're part, partly responsible for the museum. You know, we do what we can work and work with those at the museum. Because they're telling their they're telling our history for us. They're they're our mouthpiece for us. That when we can get out and we and they're great mouthpieces. Uh, you know you know. But I just want to jump in and say, Carrie's being modest. The museum would not exist if it weren't for local fourteen forty. I, I think it's great. I, you know, a lot of people don't know of how important these these local unions are and what and all that they do. 
people just think they're they're just a union, but but you do so much more for the community. We look at things this way. Maybe coal is not what it used to be. And anyone in their right mind knows that as things, as time goes on, things change. But we will always need the union. Uh, if the energy field switches, I think the union needs to switch with them, you know. And this will take time, but people will need to know that the union is something that as long as these things that goes on that you have no control over, and it's like an old saying that we have, if you don't belong to the union, you don't even have a seat at the table. And most likely you're on the meal, you know, you're the meal that they're serving. So <laughs> that's, uh, we always tell people cause, you know, if you want to live a better life, work union. Yeah. And, and you don't, I mean, I know it's local 1440, but y'all took a bus down to Alabama. Kenzie was telling me, right. So you, you don't just stay there. You, you, you know, you support the unions everywhere, right? We do. We've not only took a bus to Alabama, we've been to Washington, D.C. We've been out in St. Louis. We've been in Madisonville, Kentucky. A lot of our members have been on bus trips for six or seven times. And at, uh, we were owed to D.C., which was an eight-hour trip up and back. Uh, and, and for a bunch of old retired miners, <laughs> that was a, a, a long day. But we thought it was worth it. And we got our health care and pensions. Not That's because great. of some coal company producing coal, but because of good, honest people in this country knowing that what miners had done for them in the past and they did not need to be left behind. That's excellent. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad you you were able to mention all the, all the work that you guys do. Now I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about the centennial of Blair Mountain and all that's going in, all the work that you've put in to put this on and all that's going to happen over Labor Day. It's not just one day. It's the entire weekend. I, I'm, I, I'm correct in saying that, right? Yeah. So the centennial for the Battle of Blair Mountain uh, will culminate over Labor Day weekend, but we actually have events that are happening before Labor Day weekend and after Labor Day weekend. It's hard to summarize all that's going on. I guess first I'd say have people visit Blair100.com. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Where can they go? <laughs> yeah, go to Blair100.com slash events and you might be a little bit overwhelmed at everything <laughs> yeah, that's taking place because <laughs> there's so there's so many communities that are involved. I don't, it's grown bigger and better than we could have ever imagined. Um, so we've got things happening in Mingo, Boone, Logan, Kanawha, McDowell, Raleigh, Monongalia, uh, we've got virtual events happening in Pennsylvania and Virginia. Just so many people of all kinds of backgrounds. I mean, unions, museums, historical societies, descendants uh, have taken part in this. Um, and it's really exciting to see it all come together. I guess my big push would be for folks to attend the kickoff event that's going to take place in Charleston on Friday, September 3rd at the Civic Center. We're going to have some music, uh, labor music at that event. We'll have Phil Wiggins there um, and Jerry Mons, both of which were on the 1987 Mate One soundtrack. And this is the first time that they're coming together uh, in 30 years to play. And I think it's going to be vibrant and spicy and fun <laughs> and yeah doors will open at 4 p.m tickets are 15 dollars. i will say in consideration of the uptick in covid cases in west virginia we've reduced the capacity of the concert to half capacity i think we have less than 80 tickets left um so if folks are listening to this go online and grab your ticket if we have any more available, of course, we'll be selling them there in person as well. I think any concert described as spicy is a definitely must attend. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll be fun. We'll also have many lectures there too. We'll have Crystal Good coming per, she'll be performing remotely her poem, Civil Up and Rising. We'll have Emily Hilliard, who is the Folk Life Director of West Virginia. We'll have Doris Lady D. Fields, who is known as West Virginia's First Lady of Soul. And we'll have um, Sarah Lynch Thomas in there as well, who has participated in the 2011 protest march um, and is responsible for this project called Blair Pathways that really like goes through and 
kind of traces the music behind behind the mind wars so I think it's going to be fun everyone should definitely come out and they should go to Blair100.com because I guarantee if you live in the southern coalfields of West Virginia you're going to find something in your your community to attend and it's been exciting to see the project grow the Blair Centennial is a project of the museum uh, that started back in 2017 once we got an NEH grant which was really I think transformative for the museum and has allowed us to grow and we've been able to create new partnerships and create new narratives you know of West Virginia and and really build a community around this history I think it's it's exciting and that's fantastic I think anyone and everyone is whether you're interested in the coal mines or not can appreciate what's going on there and and should definitely check it out or or stop by for for the region or even if you're outside the region uh, definitely it's a must-see I think there's there's another question that we always we ask all our guests towards the end of the show and and I wanted to ask you guys where do you call home and and why do you refer to it as home what makes it unique to you so I live in Wayne County, but I always call my mom and dad's house home. Like my husband and I live together and I'll still say like when we go visit for the weekend, I'm like, yeah, we're coming home. (laughs) That's what I call my home, just being with my mom and dad. And actually I grew up in Wyoming County, about five minutes from Mingo County line, about 10 minutes from the McDowell County line. So I grew up in this tri-county area in Southern West Virginia, have family, you know, in both of those counties roots in both of those counties but yeah Cub Creek mom and dad's house will always be home nice well that that's a hard one for me and Wilma because we we live in two different places now uh, <laughs> like I say we grew up in Mingo County right, right lived there until it's been about 12 11 or 12 years ago and we moved to Nicholas County uh which is up toward the central part of the state halfway but we're halfway between Summersville and Richwood a little old place called Nettie and we love it here. We're on top of a mountain up 2,700 and some feet here. And we're looking out right at uh, the Beach Ridge wind turbines back in Greenbrier County. But we love Mate One and Mingo County. And we journey there. Most of the time, we spend a, a week here. It probably averages out about a week here and a week in Mingo. So sort of, it's about 50-50. I also, you know, I consider... Mate One, Red Jagged, Metter, those places home. The mountains are home. There's something about the mount, mountain heritage. Terry and I both, Terry's a ginsenger. I like to look for mushrooms. I like to watch the sunset. There's something about the mountains and, and perspective. You know, like all the holy people from all different groups often went up on the mountain to find perspective to pray, to search your own soul for what what direction you need to take. The Indians called it vision questing. And it's like gathering a site to see not only what direction you're going to go, but you can look back and see where you've been and what and the way forward. And those things was very important to me. And without the mountains, I'm lost. I love the mountains up here in Nicholas County because I can get out and walk in them. They're more gentle sloped, but there's nothing like that high perspective, just looking straight down, you know, that I had in Mingo County. And I still like that I can't quite get up there like I did when I was young. That's that's what's important to me. That, that's an awesome answer. We Neil and I say all the time, we ground our podcast on place and perspective. And even though I no longer live in Appalachia and, and we discuss it on our podcast, my brother does, I still call the mountains home. I, I grew up hunting bloodroot. Never could find the ginseng, Terry. I wasn't very good at that, but I could find a ton of bloodroot. <laughs> but I still, yeah, the mountains always draw me back. I still call them home. That That's what's home for me. And I appreciate that your answer. And it's definitely awesome and powerful and, and, and just perfect uh, for, for the ending of this episode. I want to thank you guys for taking part of this. I really appreciate it. And I want to say again, we want to gas up what you guys are doing. We want to celebrate what you guys are doing there in Maytuan um, with the celebration. And anyone and everyone should definitely check it out. It's over Labor Day weekend. The kickoff, like Kenzie said, is in Charleston. 
Blair100.com. Blair100.com. Definitely check it out and see what's going on and make your way over and, and, and go to one event or all the events. But, but really, I appreciate what you guys are doing and thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much. Thank you. Neil, I guess one word for it would be an educational episode. That's what I, that's exactly what I was about to say, man. I am just dumb. I, I, <laughs> I needed that. You know? <laughs> no, but for real, it's, it's, it's things that people should already know that people need to know. Yeah, about me included. our history. I was just I was just sitting there listening like a sponge, man, just trying to take it all in, soaking it up. You guys were on a roll, and I didn't want to mess the flow up, and I was getting I was getting educated down here in the six oh six. It was good, Kenzie, Will, Wilma, and Terry. They you know they all had a a lot to lot to offer. You know, obviously we said on the episode we appreciate them taking the time, but. I really appreciate what they're doing over there with the Mine Wars Museum, with with the Blair Mountain Centennial that's coming up that we mentioned. And and I know we mentioned a couple of times in the episode, but just for the listeners, if you want to check out what's going on, it's Blair100.com. Or if you just want to see the the museum and check out check that out, there's a lot of good resources on there. It's WVMineWars.org. Yeah, it's our job on here to gas things like that up, and I, I can't I can't think of a of a better thing in, in Appalachia to gas up than than what they got going on over there. And uh, just you know, grateful that they would spend the time to come on our our little podcast, and hopefully we can reach a lot of the listeners and a lot of folks and direct people that way. Yeah, pretty country too. Have you ever have you ever been to Mate One? No, I I have not. Uh, but, oh, I, but need to, me, I need to go. Me. Sounds like I need to go Labor Day. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Everybody needs to go Labor Day. Uh, Mingo County, I mean, it, it's right by Lincoln County, which is where a previous caller right. we had, Yancey, right. that's where he's from. Uh, yeah. Beautiful country, not to mention everything that's going to be going on Labor Day. You know I'm about to stop down there at JJJ's on my way through. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> on Yancey, where you at? JJJ's. <laughs> <laughs> Matt hit up Biscuit World. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm grateful for them. Great, great cause. Great thing that they're doing in Appalachia. And I hope um, some of our followers can can learn a little bit from this episode and also uh, give them a shout out, give them a follow, maybe even hit them up on Labor Day. Uh, at least go check out. Uh, what they're doing uh, on their website. So if, if nothing else, check out the kickoff. They said it's going to yeah. be in Charleston, West Virginia. Yeah. I, I uh, guess we can maybe go, go ahead and get into of place segment. Uh, do you have anything to mention of place tonight? Man, I feel like such a failure at times, you know, <laughs> at times? especially, especially <laughs> during this episode when I was just, you know, listening, taking in everything because I was like, "You're taking notes." I need to learn. I need to learn from them. I need to learn from you. So, uh, you know, hit me with the of place tonight. Of place, I, I think I'll uh, I'll just keep it on the whole history of the mine wars, the whole history of Blair Mountain. There was one thing I mentioned the documentary when we were chatting with Kenzie and Terry and Wilma. Uh, the documentary Mine Wars, it's, it's really good. It's actually an excellent documentary about the history, kind of some of the history they were talking about. But there, there was a line in that documentary. I watched it a number of years ago, but I will also watch it recently. There's a line in it that have, has always stuck with me. It stands out as, as a, I don't know what the word is. It just stands out, it kind of gives makes my hair in my neck stand up when, when I hear it in the documentary, but it says there's someone, some individual talking about the miners. And he says in the documentary, he, he says it like a quote that they said back in the day after they were defeated at, at Blair Mountain, we are not even sure we are American citizens in the eyes of the government. And that has just always eerily kind of stood out for me every time I watch this documentary. 
And, and it was the miners thinking that they'd been betrayed by the government or uh, that they had paid more attention to the capitalist than the, than the working man. And that's just something I wanted to, to mention in of place. It kind of goes back to the what we talked about in the episode of the UMWA kind of creating a culture in Appalachia that that mining culture and i think has stood the test of time of if you go back to that quote we are not even sure we are american citizens in the eyes of the government just this culture of independence the culture of resistance of having a dignity for that resistance this culture of a fierce pride that appalachians have always had even in the in, in the documentary it talks about appalachians especially miners but the appalachian culture are people made of steel I just culture think that's that resilience, that, culture of resilience. Absolutely. Man. Over the years, over the decades. You're a thousand percent right. Maybe it all started with coal miners, but it, it it's trickled down to to society as a whole in Appalachia. That's who we are. Yeah. That's how, that's how we were built. Exactly. That fierce pride, that independence that that Appalachians have. Yeah, I think that's a great that's a great point. I wanted I wanted to to let you shed light on on the of place and that you just got me fired up just talking about it. So I mean <laughs> I know, nothing I, could, nothing could be more true, man. That's such a great perspective of who it, we are and how we came to be. It uh, is, it is, and it all started seemingly, you know, with these mind wars. If you know, if, and why they're not taught in school just blows my mind, but. It, for anyone that wants to, you know, watch that documentary, check it out. It really talks a lot about the history and it talks a lot about this independent, resistant uh, mentality that the coal miners had that projected into the unions as they were created and has projected over time to, to Appalachians in general. Yeah, no doubt. So that, that, that's kind of all I had, man. I, I felt like I learned a lot this episode. I don't know about you, but I done said it. You know, I did. <laughs> Old Mother Jones was thrown in there. The redneck red bandana. I appreciated <laughs> learning about that. But yeah, uh, I, I don't have anything else, man. I, I, I Like I said, Kenzie, Wilma and Terry, they're all doing some great work over there. If you haven't checked out the mine, even if you haven't checked out the museum, I think it's a must-see anytime you go to Mingo County, the Matewaden, West Virginia. Yep. I'm going. I'm headed that way. All right. Got my kids. Learning experience. Educational. Here we come. Get them a a red bandana. Yes, sir. They wear one. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I, I guess we can end it there, like I usually say. Till next time. Peace. getting thin now I'm facing down with a grin I've been in the city too long sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains again